It's August 2nd, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is David Osman for Radio Free Oz, and I'm backstage just off the main set of Afghan Gladiator. That's that hot new TV show that gives returning vets from AFPAC a chance to go back for another tour of counterinsurgency. Exciting show, and here's the winner of tonight's contest, the former National Guardsman who already revolved through eight tours over there. It's PTSD First Class Crystal McStanley. Well, tell us something about yourself, Chris. Uh, yes, sir. Well, um, I joined the Marines when I was 18 for on-the-job training, and it sure was because, uh, like, uh, three days later, I was in AFPAC. Oh, really? I want to go back, but they said I'm too used up, so I guess I showed them up. Well, I guess you did. Well, Ed, you, you must have brought home some souvenirs or something from your last tour, right? Yeah, PTSD, night sweats, the crabs, and I used to be a woman, but the Army took care of that the last time I, I looked. Oh, really? Well, well, that's sad, uh, yet there's something comfortably uh, ironic about, about that, too, Chris. But uh, tell us all about the Afghan Gladiator Challenge. Well, sure, sir. Uh, first, there's the uh, pop-up firefights. Uh-huh. I get five points for every turban, and, and I lose five for every CD. That's collateral, collateral damage. damage. I ended up just, just over even. Uh-huh. Then there's the uh, IED swamp thing. I had to drain the swamp and replace it with a girls' school uh-huh. without blowing anybody up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nation building. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. And then comes Bribe the Warlord stuff, bribe you know. Warlord. It's uh-huh. T-up or get terminated on the Kabul to freaking nowhere highway. Cost me an arm and a leg. Oh, really? Glad it wasn't mine. Uh-huh. Well, me too. Say, you survived those first three t- challenges, and, and but 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 how did the big show end up? It ended up, man, in the poppy field. You know, you have to dream your way out of it. Really? It's kind of like the war itself, huh? Well, tell me, how, how'd you do it? Well, I used my big jar here of Fratricide. It's, it's a meth-enhanced electrolyte replacement system, and it keeps me up all day. Because, uh-huh. see, over there, they, they, they own the day uh, and the night. It uh-huh. really doesn't matter. Well, uh, so wait, you you won something, though, besides the, the tour to go back. Yeah, right? I get this case of Bud Light Lime. That's enough to get the general from Paris to Berlin in my new Hummer. The Army gave you a Hummer? And just the down payment, but it's got robusted air conditioning and skin seats. Well, so cool. that's your job. It's not not a tough one. You're just driving the general. Isn't no, it, huh? sir. Our orders are to clear hold and forget about it. Well, but what about winning the war? There's no winning, sir. It's uh, uh, just survival. Well, PTSD, First Class Crystal McSamley, that's just what you've done on Afghan Gladiator today. So, from me to you, good luck on your way back to Stan. Thanks. By the way, all those countries over there are called Stan something. What does that mean? Did they tell you what that means? Yeah, sir, Stan is Muslim for pain. Afghani pain, Uzbekis pain, Paki pain, Missouri pain. (laughs) Well, no pain, no gain. Yeah, well, lots of one and uh, none of the other. But but it's a good war, sir. Uh I already signed up my unborn children to go over there and forget when I'm going to go over and uh, clear and hold. Well, it sounds like you've got it all under control, uh, Stan. And and, and this is uh, David Osmond for Radio Free Oz here at the Bob Hope Studios in Burbank, California. July 2010. What a month. And here's the best of that month on Radio Free Oz. 
Sometimes I wonder why I pay attention to all these wingnuts, the Sarah Palins and the Orrin Hatches, and, and in this case, the Mike Huckabees. It's because they're so ridiculous, I can't pass it by. It's, it's one of the few chuckles, so to speak, you get in this world of, of, of social analysis. So, so you've got a Huckabee. I got a Huckabee. I'm oh, going to have okay. to have it taken off by a doctor, I suppose. <laughs> hey, Doc, look, I got a Huckabee. Gay groups are lashing out at former Arkansas GOP Governor Mike Huckabee for saying in a recent interview, and he, oh, you know, this is the guy that everybody thinks is, you know, he's conservative, but he's really smart, and he plays rock and roll, and he's got a sense of humor. He's, he's okay. He's not okay. All right. they're, they're after him because he said in a recent interview that he doesn't support gay marriage in part because of the ick factor. Ooh. Ooh. He said, I do believe that God created male and female, and... and he, he believes that God created male and female. This guy's going way out on the edge. Yeah, here. that's that's very, and intended for marriage to be the relationship of two opposite sexes. This is what he said in explaining uh-huh. his views on gay marriage. Male and female are biologically compatible to have a relationship. We can get into the ick factor, but the fact is two men in a relationship, two women in a relationship, biologically ick, that doesn't work the same. It doesn't work the same. Now, let's, let's go back to Genesis. I just read R. Crumb's version of Genesis, so I'm well well into it. I don't believe at any point a god said, and get married. No. When they were expelled from paradise, well, right, he, Adam and Eve? Uh-huh. He gave them equipment that fits. We don't, we're not arguing that, but it's, you know, it's not the only way to fit, and it's really none of his business. Gods? There's, no, Huckabee's. And there's a big difference between God and Huckabee, and part of it is compassion and keeping his mouth shut. God rarely talks about gay marriage. You know, uh, only men, none of that happens. None of that, no, none I of that even go there. happens, no. All right, Huckabee later joked in the profile that the only thing worse than a torrid affair with sweet, sweet Nancy Pelosi would be a torrid affair with Helen Thomas. He's doing some serious thinking. Yeah, this is, he's, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. thinking about banging Nancy Pelosi and Helen Thomas and what's it like for two men and two women who don't have the right equipment to do icky things. If, if he said, if those were my only two options, Pelosi and Thomas, uh, I, I'd probably be for same-sex marriage. Asked about the former governor's comments, human rights campaign vice president Fred Sane said Huckabee's statements came as no surprise from a man who is consistently wrong and uninformed. Uh-huh. Ick is being fired from a job, being the victim of a hate crime, or being bullied at school simply because you are a lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, Sane said. And Ick is certainly an appropriate way to describe Mr. Huckabee's mind going to sex when all that we are asking for is equality. Ick indeed. Well, Ick, well, this, now, what this, I, I got a picture here. He's willing to engage, yes, in 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 homosexuality, if his only choice in in non homosexuality is an eighty nine year old woman or his mortal enemy in the Senate. Yeah, who is who busts his balls and I think probably shrivels them in in, in the process. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, uh, he's really close then. I really, Come on. really close. I mean, he's right on the edge. Any volunteers? Well, here's the thing. I believe that this is another example of that obsession with homosexual love, which. What lies behind the ick, right? If we could only look into his mind and check for tumescence. Wait a minute. Wait Uh-oh. a minute. Checking Mike Huckabee for tumescence for a woody ick. 
This is David Osmond for Radio Free Oz, and I'm here at Orly Airport, just outside Paris, uh, and I'm talking again with the world-famous designer, Yves Saint-Stoul. David. <laughs> He's just about to travel to Abu Dhabi with a new line of collegiate fashions. Uh, Yves, what is behind all this? What's the reason? Well, David, that petite sandbox of Midi's culture has imported a pharmacy, American University, NYU, and mm. I've realized the fashion statement for the new collegians, bringing the culture of the Big Apple right to the dry date. That's what they're calling the new desert campus. Aha, uh-huh, the dry date campus of NYU. Well, what, what what kind of clothes have you got? Well, for the co-ed girls, the burqa bikini, or uh-huh. the burkini, as they call it. Burkini, the It burkini, covers huh? uh, what Abu Dhabians say are the most lustful parts of the body, the eyes, the lips, the hair, with the black drapes. Oh, well, yes, but what about the, the breasts and the, you know, the pubic area? Uh, in Abu Dhabi, those, those body parts do not exist. Ah. You see, the emir has declared the bra to be un-Islamic. So first I burned the bra like Judith Chicago, mm-hmm. and then I banned the bra, mm-hmm. and I finally abandoned the bra and designed with my Chinese partner, Wu Wei, the abandoned bra. True weightless fashion. Weightless, I see. You certainly will. <laughs> well, but now, what, what have you got for the men? I've designed the turbo turban. You know, the Abu Dhabians like to race their platinum-plated Audubon Mercedes top-down around the dunes, so with the turbo turban, you are guaranteed to keep your head and make a fashion statement on the test. <laughs> <laughs> Same time. Well, and your famous footwear. Ah, oh, for men and women, a special line of purity shoes. Very purity. big over there. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. They contain no mirrors mm-hmm. for looking up the burqa. Uh-huh. And they have not even one page of any holy book inside. Mm-hmm. And the heels are filled with hot sand for comfort and running away from terrorist activities. Oh, and what about sunglasses? I know that's a big line of yours. Certainement. Yeah. I have designed for women the garbo bands, the iconic eye coverings of solid gold that are completely opaque when they are looked at by men. And for the men? Huzoramic aviators. Look at these. They look so cool all the time. And they look good with any kind of mustache. Oh, yeah. Oh, they look very nice with mine, I, I have to say. I look positively Middle Eastern. Well, what's your advice uh, to new students there at Abu Yu? Well, they should bring their London fog along because the average daily temperature is a lucky 108. Mm-hmm. Well, I must go on as the Royal Abu Dhabi Airlines as a special flight for my models and me. I, I suppose uh, they're all students. Of eh? course. NYU features uh, degrees in gold and oil management, anti-democratic law, and abstract art history. Who knows, with a diploma from Abu Dhabi, you might become... I'm a minister of culture. A minister of culture? Is that that a religious degree? It is now. (laughs) Well, this is David Osmond for Radio Free Oz. I'm here at Orly Airport in Paris. Well, Dave, back in the Great Depression... Of course, this is the Greater Depression because we do everything better. Um, they used to have, there was a song that Pete Seeger... I don't know if he wrote it, but he sang it. The banks are made of marble with a guard at every door. And the vaults are stuffed with silver that the workers sweated for. Well, the banks may be made of marble, but that doesn't keep them from crumbling even today. Regulators have shut down a Nevada bank, raising to 83 the number of U.S. bank failures just this year. This year, 83 banks? Yeah, the Federal Deposit Uh Insurance Corp. took over Nevada Security Bank based in Reno, with $480.3 million in assets and $479.8 million in deposits, but it failed. Uh, The failure of the bank is expected to cost the deposit insurance fund $80.9 million. So they were $80.9 million in the red. I think I have problems, you know, balancing my books. Okay, 
So this is a time of bank failures, but great wisdom. This is Sarah Palin. I don't like to talk about Mama Grizzly unless she says something so weird and funny that it it just makes the listeners chuckle. Go ahead. Go ahead. When asked by O'Reilly, this is, you know, this O'Reilly. Yeah. How to stop the oil leak? Sarah Palin responded, quote, the Dutch, they are known, and the Norwegian, they are known for for dikes and for cleaning up water and for dealing with spills. This woman was almost president of the United States. For dealing with spills. The Dutch, Uh they are known. I love the way she talks like this, you know, the Dutch, they are known, and the Norwegian, they are known for dykes and cleaning up water and dealing with spills. Next. Sarah, come on, the best minds uh, in the, uh, to, to quote, <laughs> to quote uh, Ginsburg, the best minds of our generation are out there in the middle of the Gulf trying to figure out why those sheer blades didn't come together. You know, they had dozens of, of cameras down there. They've got all these undersea cameras. Right. They made how many billions of dollars BP last year? Profit. Profit. Uh, $17 billion. $17 billion profit. Their daily expenses must be a billion dollars, which means that I'm sorry about all those pension funds that are have to go to hell here, but you know they could lower the price of oil and make a little less money and still be able to spend billions of dollars cleaning it all up, you know? I mean, just a little less money. Captain. General Petraeus, come in, sir. Thank you. Uh, did you have any trouble finding your way around Walter Reed? No, no, no. I know this hospital. Half the men I commanded are right here. Uh, oh, excuse me, sir. Sergeant, I thought I made it clear I can't be disturbed. Who? Yeah, I've seen the bald bastard on TV. What? No. No, tell him he can't have a piece of him. That was Dr. Phil. He wants to come over and join us. <laughs> Who does he think I am, Britney Spears? Well, you're just about as famous now, General. Well. CNN is running your feigning spell alongside Marie Osmond's similar episode on Dancing with the Stars. I didn't faint. I was uh, taking what we call in Iraq a 10-click nap. Keeps you rested, on your toes. But nevertheless, sir, the Pentagon has requested that uh, after your uh, medical incident on yeah. Capitol Hill that you get a complete physical. Oh, uh, yeah. Just put this thermometer in your ear. Uh, it won't be necessary, Captain. I have a Vitestats implant. Uh, see, right here. You just touch the screen right there. Blood pressure, 120 over 64. Tip, 98.8. Estimated lifespan. Mm, look at that. So, uh, good. We can mm. move right on to the psychological evaluation. Uh, now, sure, sure, when sure. you appeared to faint in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Was Uh that in any way connected with the fact that you were being questioned by Senator John McCain? Uh, Hell no. I can have that Navy brat for dinner. Well, perhaps it was the line of questioning then, sir. I mean, you were being grilled about the timetable for U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh Uh-huh. Captain... When that shitstorm comes, I'm standing behind the president. Well, yes, sir. Right no. behind him. Well, let's just take a Completely look at the stop him. I'm be action him. video what? of the Senate proceedings, okay? Okay. Let's just take a look here. See? Watch, sir. As they get, begin uh-huh. to talk about the record number of American deaths, your shoulders start to slump. Well, there's big numbers. Yeah. Here, when they bring up the brutality of the Taliban and the warlords, your head starts to droop. Now well, I've been awake for them. Now, notice how the blood seems to drain out of your face when they call the war unwinnable. Uh, I, uh, General! Uh, General! Wake up! Uh, nurse! Nurse! Get me 40 cc's of fratricide stat! Can't face it. Yeah, Radio Free Oz on the web. 
coming to you from RadioFreeOz.com. And the web means, David, we get everywhere uh, at the same time. Oh, I should introduce myself. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, our co-host, David Osman. But it's not the same time everywhere, Pete. Well, it may not be the same time, but it's the same place wherever you are. And the reason I mentioned it is... Is that existential or Buddhist? I've uh, lost in your... Uh, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, okay, man. Go I'm, ahead, ju- I'm just trying to make an irrelevant point here, right. which is that we reach everywhere. We probably have listeners in Malaysia. I know that when you go up to Facebook, there are people from like all over the, the world with all sorts of unusual ethnic names speaking languages I don't recognize who are fans of Radio Free Oz. Well, in Malaysia, they don't just get Radio Free Oz. They have their new Amer- American Idol Malaysian form, okay? Yeah, and Idol. it's okay. called Young Imam. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Ten good-looking male contestants in sharp-looking suits are assigned to sing and com- compete, uh, complete a series of complex tasks. At the yeah. end of the show, the studio lights dim, the music drops to a whisper, and a clutch of young hopefuls step forward nervously, waiting hand-in-hand hand to find out who will be sent home that night. And instead of a record contract or a million-dollar prize, though, the last imam standing wins a scholarship to the Al-Madina University in Saudi Arabia, a job leading prayers at the Kuala Lumpur Mosque, and an expense-paid trip to Mecca to perform the Hajj pilgrimage. Boy, that's a big prize. Now, now, wait a minute. Now, what kind of stunts do they perform here? I'm glad you asked. Yes. The sole judge who decides who stays and goes, you know, um, each each week, uh, isn't an aging pop star or talk show host like oh, we'd use of yeah, course. That, right, that's of course. Our, our format he's the turban wearing former grand mufti of malaysia's national mosque hassan mahmoud <laughs> and the here lights he come comes up. now lights come up yeah, okay. la- last week mr hassan <laughs> stifled a sob as he eliminated 25 year old sarafuddin suat from the show for stumbling over some of the finer points of islamic history oh, Ooh, oh, Sarafan, why, come on fans sign onto facebook to heap praise on the aspiring young mullahs including some prospective mother-in-laws hope to marry off their daughters, some viewers say they have been inspired to take another look at their faith. I don't know from which direction. Mm. Okay. Others simply appear to be smitten. I like. I'd vote for you. Hi, hi, hi. One person identifying herself as Noor Anatul Fitria wrote one of the contestants, 22-year-old Hazam Kamal of the show's fan book on the page. You know, yeah, So obviously yeah. she's writing in English. Yeah, now, it truly is a second language. It's easy to see how the young imams. This is from the Wall Street Journal. So this this has got to be the truth. Uh, it's the real thing. They might. It, it's easy to see how the young imams might send Malaysian teens a flutter dressed in matching robes or suits. That gets me right off the bat. Much like a Western style all boy pop group, they are selected for the contest after months of rigorous auditions. Months. Because they have time there, Dave. They have time to do anything. Most caught in the uh, the producer's ear with the quality of their voices while reciting verses from the Quran. Some are still students, while others work in businesses and financial services. The show's organizers then test the contestants on general knowledge and geography to make sure they're up to the intellectual rigors of the show. They have to be able to speak on a wide range of social issues. We made them talk about all kinds of things like the environment and UFOs. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm sure that I didn't, I didn't know that was a big thing in Imam land. Yeah, well, you know, know the Quran, right? And no, but know the environment a, yep. and be hip to those aliens. Hip to the aliens. So, so each year, young okay. Imam, each week, young, young Imam goes out of its way to confront the contestants with situations they might face one day as real Imams, right? In the first episode, the young contenders were sent out to prepare unclaimed corpses for burial. And a 
Rachel Wright. It is love. Oh. Yeah, this is a big show. Can you imagine? Like, it's so much like American Idol. I just... I- Kelly Kelly Clarkson won because she knew how to wrap them corpses. Well, it's going out and finding one first. I mean, yes. It gets weird. In another show, the contestants ditched their suits and black Muslim caps to don sports shirts to head out with the police on a midnight raid on a gang of teenage motorcycle street racers in the southern town of Johobaru. The young imams none of them much older than the street racers, herded the bikers into a room and tried to wean them off their racing fix by lecturing them about Islam. So you're Uh rapping bodies one day and you're rapping to street kids, you know. I the think next. I, I think uh, a young Im- dancing with the young imams. My, there's that uh, spinoff. I'm looking for the spinoffs here. Uh, uh, young imams of New Jersey. I like perhaps that. you think that has a little bit of style. To Anything that, so. like you know, your imam is my imam. You know, um, dooby doo. Warm it up. Right now, humanity isn't a hot item. Some will say it's in the freezer. I'll say it's in the refrigerator. And everyone that I know is trying to get it over to the stove. Warm it up, not on a high flame, because we don't want to burn the bottom. Dreams are angry and confused Say how can you 
This is Gary Buzzcut, Tea Party candidate for senator. Between my well-paid clandestine missions, people, some of them probably Russian spies, ask me why should I vote for a former CIA op. Here's why. Because I'm a trained, professional American asshole. I get off on danger, violence, and covert action. I've paid off warlords and defused roadside bombs. I've told them we should execute the Guantanamo guys. And I know from personal experience that torture works very, very well. I had Bin Laden trapped in his cave, but the general wouldn't send in the rangers, the shitbag. So if you want a blunt, confrontational, aggressive commando with an addiction to adrenaline down in Washington, get out the vote for me, Gary Buzzcut. I'm no cartoon hero. <laughs> and I've got nothing to lose. Paid for by the Committee for a Compassion-Free America. I'm Gary Buzzcut, and I've okayed this mission. On the phone with me is uh, David Bloom. He's an uh, energy expert, the author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas, and the founder of Bloom Distillation. And um, what he does, amongst other things, is bring ethanol to your local car. How good, good to have you on the phone, David. How are you doing? I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, t- now, I, you know, I grew up without any ethanol in my life, and yet I hear it's a, it's, it's a, it's a... Well, that's a real pity. Yeah, it is, isn't it, isn't it? <laughs> put, more, put more corn in my genes. So it works. Uh, tell me how ethanol works as a substitute for oil, and then let me know why uh, it hasn't been popular from the get-go, okay? Well, from the get-go, it has been popular. Alcohol was the first auto fuel before gasoline was ever invented. Really? I mean, it wasn't like there was a pool of gasoline sitting around and someone said, gosh, wish we had an engine that had run on that. Uh But uh, alcohol was first, and uh, the Model T uh, actually was an alcohol vehicle that could also run on gasoline. So Mm -hmm. it was the world's first flex-fuel vehicle. And, of course, it's taken 100 years to come back around to a place now where our our cars are now being made on the assembly line to run on both alcohol and gasoline, but you almost never hear about it, even though we've been doing it since 94. And that's basically because alcohol uh, is not real popular with oil companies and therefore not popular with the people they hire to defend their interests, our Congress people. Let me ask you something. uh, I mean, I could just put pure ethanol in my tank in my car and it, it would run. It would be fine. Well, it, uh, you can at least go 50% with mm-hmm. a modern car, and many cars can go to 100% because fuel injection systems mm-hmm. are pretty smart, and they're run by a computer that can adjust for a wide variety of conditions. But uh, with a, uh, on the assembly line in Detroit, it's only $50 of different uh, materials, basically a little bit smarter computer, to make the difference between alcohol and gas, or you can buy a computer aftermarket to run on 100% alcohol. But today, you could go ahead and put in half a tank alcohol, and your car would run just fine. Okay. Now, this doesn't apply to diesels, right? This is gasoline engines, right? Actually, alcohol can run diesel engines also. Uh, You know, the first diesel engines actually did run on combinations of alcohol and vegetable oil, and Dr. Diesel had uh, both versions. So we can actually run not only our cars, but our diesel uh, trucks. We can run our turbines that we use to make electricity, and we can even cook uh, and make uh, hot water with alcohol. 
uh, as we demonstrate with fuel oil burners. Well, okay. So uh, has there been an actual, I hate to use the word conspiracy because it's a dangerous word nowadays. Has there been a concerted effort to keep keep ethanol off the market as a fuel substitute or, or, or flex uh, a fuel with, with oil? Well, I got to tell you, the oil companies are really good at uh, spreading money around and having allies. The first real conspiracy against alcohol fuel was done back in the uh, early 19-teens when uh, basically the oil companies uh, gave a little old ladies group $4 million and they went out and bought Congress and passed prohibition. Everybody thought that was about drinking, but as far as uh, Rockefeller was concerned, it was all about getting rid of the competition, which, you know, I'll call it half the market at the time. So hmm. it's all very well documented that uh, the first alcohol conspiracy was uh, was between with uh, Rockefeller and the Women's Christian Temperance Movement to get rid of demon rum and therefore Rockefeller's competition. Yeah, as W.C. Fields would say, Lompoc. Yes, that's where the WCTU was, was centered. Well, then there's two conspiracies because it was uh, the people that got rid of hemp weren't worried about smoking weed. They're worried about it as a competition for paper. So, yeah, you oh, got... Well, and- and for synthetic fiber, and if you take a look at it, the DuPonts were very involved in the hemp thing. This is the second time that they tried to take a product, demonize it as a drug, and then get it prohibited. Alcohol was first. The same play- playbook was used a couple of decades later with hemp. F- absolutely fascinating. So let me, uh, this, this is great. We're going to come back the next time we talk with you, David. We're going to talk about what is the, what's the carbon footprint of ethanol? You know, in other words, nothing is made without some use of resources, without, you know, with, without some sort of backlash. And we'll find out about that when we talk with David Bloom next time. Thanks a lot. Okay, everybody, and Uh-oh. I'm speaking to everybody all across the web world from, I don't know, from Toledo to Sheboygan to Uzbekistan. Right? He's got that look on his face. Folks. America is is now a f- the official land of wingnuts. Uh, we've always known it, but you know, it's Arizona's going crazy, and we see Georgia's a ha-ha state, and of course, South Carolina has been, you know, off the edge for a long time. Now, you know, Alvin Green... All right. The unemployed veteran who mysteriously won the state's Democratic Senate primary oh, without yeah. campaigning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he has come up with his own stimulus plan. Are you ready? I'm okay. Ready. Drum roll. Another thing we can do for jobs, he says, is make toys of me, especially for the holidays. Little dolls. Me. Like maybe little action dolls. Me in an army uniform, Air Force uniform, and me in my suit. They can make toys of me and my vehicle, especially for the holidays and Christmas for the kids. That's something that would create jobs. So you see, I think out of the box like that. It's not something a typical person would bring up. That's something that could happen. That makes sense. It's not a joke. I like this guy. Yeah. Action dolls of me. Of me. Of me. Sure. Yeah. Make toys of me. That's it. Even that wrestler from Minnesota, he didn't even have action toys made of him. No, because Jesse was vaguely modest. Right? And he had a brain. Well, that too. Yeah, that too. But I like this guy. Green, huh? Yeah, green. It's not a joke. He is, but that's not a joke. No. I'm Yeri Jero, the host of America's world-class web game, Empire Jeopardy! Today's contestants, he's a vertical urban farmer from battered Washington. Meet Jack Browndard. How's it going, Jack? It's growing, Mr. Jero. Up and up and up. 
He's the commander of former intelligence in Syncom Dread Sand AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. Meet Lieutenant Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Colonel, what is Syncom Dread Sand AFPAC? Well, I wasn't in long enough to find that out, Yuri. She's a loan denier for Windjammer Gogol in Jockey Shorts, Illinois. Meet Swendaloo Zimmer. Working hard, Swendaloo? Saying no is becoming a real growth business, Mr. Joe. Well, the rules are as simple as our contestants. Win two and we talk. Lose two and you walk. Tie and you try again next time. Here we go. 221,943,567. What's a number large enough to confuse people? Uh, what is the cost of a B1 stealth fuselage? What is the number of barrels of oil that BP has spilled into the Gulf as of an hour ago? One for you, Jack. I see you stay on top of things. Okay, here we go again. Hiding billions of dollars of debt by not selling what you don't want until you get it back. What is window dressing? That was fast, Swindaloo. Easy. I used to date one of the Lehman brothers when I worked at B of A. Well, we're down to it now. Swindaloo and Jack, maybe we talk. But a Braunschweig, maybe you walk. Yeah. Here it is. Red Cloak for breakfast. What's the latest gluten-free diet? What is taking an early meeting with the Cardinal? What is the Hopi symbol of the cataclysmic purification of America? Bingo! <laughs> yeah, we talked about it all the time at Dreadset. Well, you get to talk some more about it because you tied it up and you'll all be back next time on Empire Jeopardy! I'll bring a PowerPoint with me. Hello, this is Melody Moneypenny speaking for your friendly music licensing people at ASCAP BMI. Have you been singing or whistling a popular song in public? As the saying goes, that's entertainment, and it will cost you real money. That's right, in your home, in your hometown, online, we've got our tune goons watching and waiting. Your performance is what we call a cover, and since we own every song you've ever heard, each cover is chargeable to you at an average rate of $500 per listener. And in case you think that fee goes to the composer, don't make that mistake again. These fees go to pay our tune goons, accountants, and executives. So the next time you and your gang want to sing Sympathy for the Devil at the street fair, think again. Because we're behind the bushes, waiting to catch you having a good time at our expense. For a permit, please contact Big Brother at yourscrewedagain.com. Hi, this is Sharzad Hackerthumb, and I play the teenage barista at the Useless Boy Cafe on Tipping Point, Radio Free Oz's new seaside soap opera. I listen to Radio Free Oz because I pick up the occasional useful Yiddish term. I know that the executives at Goldman Sachs of Crap are not simply thieves and criminals, they're mumsers and tumblers. John Bomer isn't just a witless hand puppet, he's a schmendrick. And the vice principal at my middle school is a schmohawk. When one of the stuck-up girls in my class gave me grief, I told her to stop being such a schmageggy. She said I was putting a curse on her. Maybe I was. This is Sharzad Hackerthumb and you've got Oz in your ears. 
Remember in the days of Nazi Germany, Dave, when there was like a block captain called a Gauleiter, like on every block in the neighborhood, the, the person that made sure everybody else was watching everybody else and turning everybody else in. And in Moscow or in, in communist Russia, you had the political commissars. You always had somebody on the block looking, mm-hmm, looking, sneaking. Mm-hmm. Well, there's scary news out no. of Utah. An anonymous group in Utah has leaked the personal info of 1,300 people it says are illegal immigrants. The list was sent to local media and state agencies and included a demand that all persons on it be deported immediately. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, the list included 31 social security numbers, the names and dates of birth of 201 children, and the due dates of six pregnant women, almost every surname is Latino. Now, wait a minute. Now, now, if they found the Social Security numbers, yeah. are, are, are they then saying these are fake? Probably, yes. Uh-huh. They probably aren't saying anything at all. They're probably saying these people look like illegals to me. I live on a street in Salt Lake where everybody is white, and I saw this person walking down the street, so they must be illegal. That's part of the brain well, set. I, yeah, you could, I guess you could go around and sort of do a, be a census person and uh, hang out on the street corners where guys are looking for work and where the taqueria truck is, and you could hang out and sort of ask them, you know, uh, whether they're legal or illegal or not. And if they're not, not you put them in this little list and you turn them in anonymously. Yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, in, in well, German, Only in Utah. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's, about, it's, yeah. about, it's about deporting or, or doing away with the not-me. In Germany, mm-hmm. the not-me was the Jew. In, in, in Russia, the not-me was the person who was uh, out of touch with history, the anti-Bolshevik, the reactionary, the, um, you know, the person trying to st- um, uh, destroy the system, the wrecker. Right? Yeah. Now yeah. it's basically the Latino. That's all you got to be is kind of brown and not, you know, not be driving around in a million dollar car and, and you're suspect. Well, what's scary is where all this personal information might have come from. And I suppose since this, uh, this letter was sent to all kinds of news media, it went to NPR. And I mean, nobody is going to sit down and publish this stuff or read these, these things in the first place. <laughs> you can't. Because uh, it's all personal information. Nobody should. It shouldn't be out there for anyone to see. The due dates of six pregnant women. What do they want to do with those mm. six pregnant women? Get them across the border before they have their anchor babies? Sure. Because otherwise, you know, you have to pay all these people. Well, there's welfare. And my gosh, there's, uh, excuse me. I mean, the, the, the payments are going up and up and up. And my household insurance is costing me. This is David Osman. I'm here on the road for Radio Free Oz, right here with international survival fashion designer Yves Sansstuhl. And, and for the first time, we're talking here right in his Paris atelier. Oui, David, and welcome to my electronic studio where I prepare now for my new show, Ce n'est pas une voile. Aha, uh-huh, and I understand that translates, this is not a veil. Now, now what is the inspiration behind the show? Yves? Pas, David, you know by the Nouveau French uh, Bands of Burkalon. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, no one can wear clothing intended to hide the visage. Uh-huh. So, naturellement, I must rush to the head of the modest ladies of Paris with a line of digital head covering. Digital? Now, tell me how that works. Well, I use the eye face application and project it from a tiny jewel in the nose, oh. the nails. Uh-huh. Take a look here at my model, Shahrazad. Well, well, I, I can see that this must be a person covered head to toe in black. There's no, no visage to be seen there. <laughs> Patience. Uh-huh. When I alert the eye face from this handy tennis bracelet. Oh, there's a 
beautiful woman's face right right there where the where the veil was. That is Catherine Deneuve. Oh, it's very inventive. Yes, she was. <laughs> now, there are dozens of multicultural facets a woman can choose from, plus the Salvador Dali style. Oh, well, that's, of course, a melty watch face. <laughs> and René Magritte. And right there it says, across where her eyes ought to be, this is not a veil, and that's the title of your show. <laughs> very tricky. Yes, tricky. I think it is. The sounds uh-huh. to survival fashion will outwit les flics, n'est-ce pas? <laughs> I hope but, so. But uh, one more thing to show yeah. you, David. Here are my deep depression heels in oiled sea turtle leather. Wow, wow, those are weird. You know, it is historical fashion fact that in the bad economic times, shoe heels become more elevated. Uh, huh? I did, I well, did now, that. here is Eve's your heel, the tour d'affaire of shoes. Oh, but, but, but wait a second, Eve. Uh, these, these shoes have no bottom. Neither does the economy. Oh, well, it's been another great visit with you, Eve, and uh, we're right here from Paris. This is David Osmond, back to Oz Central. Au More tales of America as the world's policeman. And as Gilbert and Sullivan has told us, a policeman's law is not an happy one. Pressure has been on the Yemeni government, says CNN, to fight a growing al-Qaeda element, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which grabbed the attention of the West with the Christmas Day attempted bombing of a Northwest Airlines transatlantic flight as it landed in Detroit. There's got to be some reason for landing in Detroit. The suspect, Farouk Abdul Mutalab, who has pleaded not guilty to six federal terrorism charges, was reportedly trained and armed in Yemen. There is also increasing scrutiny of America's growing involvement. We're there and we're more than advisors. We handpicked the country's top fighters, said General Yawa Mohammed Abdullah As-Saleh. By the time they say his name, the guys are inside the compound. President Salah's nephew, who runs the elite counterterrorism unit, said that this is true. America is taking a further and deeper commitment to Yemeni security. But al-Qaeda is also stepping up its training in Yemen. <laughs> you get one, you get the other. Some counterterrorism experts warn that an influx of foreign fighters from the insurgencies in Afghanistan and Iraq is making the terrorist presence in Yemen much more resilient. Why am I not surprised? We're, we're training terrorists. We may not be running the camps, but we're creating the atmosphere that makes it possible for them to be, you know, really excited about the idea of running off to uh, behind God's back and learning how to make improvised explosive devices. What a life. You could become a plumber. No, I'm going to become an exploder. Al-Qaeda is using U.S. and British involvement in Yemen as propaganda to win over the support of locals and discredit the Yemeni government. There is also growing speculation of a more direct role in the fighting by the American military, but U.S. officials maintain they only provide intelligence and training to the Yemenis. In July, Amnesty International released photographs of U.S. cluster bombs uh, dropped on a rural Yemeni village in an anti-Al-Qaeda operation. Scores of women and children were reported to have been killed. This attack took place on December 17th, about a week before the Detroit attempted bombing. So this may have encouraged that man to come and try and bomb us in Detroit, just as all the droning in Pakistan. Uh, so says the guy that tried to bomb us in Times Square. Cluster bombs, mines, they have to be outlawed. Now, this is terror. This is state terror. Most Yemeni officials believe al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula numbers only a few hundred. Remember they told us in Afghanistan, there's only a hundred al-Qaeda there and we're spending a billion ahead. How much are we going to be spending on these guys in Yemen? There's only a few hundred highly trained fighters living in rural areas where local tribes may provide shelter. 
Yeah. Yemeni society is not homogenous. There are lots of people who see the Yemeni-U.S. security cooperation as a horrible choice, said Mohammed al-Assadi, a former editor of the Yemen Observer. Others believe this kind of cooperation is acceptable as long as it is based on a win-win deal, which they feel is not the case. Whether the U.S. or U.K. troops are building the capacity of the Yemeni forces or directly are launching the air attacks, this kind of military cooperation is publicly unwelcome. Don't we get it? We're not wanted. We're not doing any good. We're not building any nation. We're just increasing our deficit, both our financial deficit and our moral deficit. For the Yemeni government, any evidence of foreign involvement in its campaign against al-Qaeda risks a backlash, a blowback. This is one of the most conservative of Arab countries where foreigners are often viewed with suspicion. Yeah, I think that's putting it lightly. The Western trainers pay a crucial role in helping confront al-Qaeda here, but in winning the war, the government risks losing, get ready, the hearts and minds of its people. Oh my, when are we ever going to learn? This is Yeri Jero, and welcome to Empire Jeopardy, the web's most popular game show. I'm your host and witness as the Empire winds itself up and just keeps unwinding. All three contestants are back from last week. He's an urban vertical farmer from battered Washington and winner of this year's Golden Trellis Award. Meet Jack Browndart. What's the Golden Trellis, Jack? Uh, it's the Oscar of vertical permaculture, Yeri. I won it for growing 380 pounds of Brussels sprouts up the elevator shaft of an abandoned factory. I brought some for you. Thanks a bushel, Jack. He was the commander of former intelligence at Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC in Hintzville, Arkansas. But he's been picked to head the unmanned manpower center at the Drone Alone Air Force Base on Growler Island, Washington. Meet Colonel Buda Braunschweig. Oh, yeah. uh, that's quite a promotion they gave you, Colonel. You know, once I heard about my 3D PowerPoint, man, happy. <laughs> she was a loan denier for Windjammer Gorgle in Jockey Shorts, Illinois, until they kicked her upstairs to run the whole loan denial division in their Tipping Point Washington headquarters. Meet Swindle. Lou Zimmer. Happy about the transfer, Swindaloo? Working for Windjammer Gorgle is the best life sentence in the business, Mr. Yarrow. Well, the rules are as simple as our returning contestants. Win two and we talk, lose two and you walk. Tie it up and we come back for more. Okay, here we go. Four out of every five. What is the percentage of packaged foods that contain empty calories? What is the percentage of civilians collateralized by a predator-launched Hellfire missile? Yeah. <laughs> What is the percentage of the unemployed turned away from every job opening? Right you are, Swindaloo. A lot of them sleep outside my office. Well, let's go again. They're invisible, hard to catch, and worth $100 billion. What's left of the salmon in Alaska? Who are all the wealthy deadbeats who walked on their mortgages? Who are the 100 Al-Qaeda bumps still operating in Afghanistan? Bingo, Butta! <laughs> you can't find them, you can't drone them. So here we are, Swindaloo and Butta, we could talk. Okay. Jack, you're one wrong answer away from walking. Hey, don't sell my Birkenstock short, Yari. Here it is, last one. A clueless barfly with delusions of grandeur. Who is John Bomer? Right on, Swindaloo, it's John Bomer, the Sultan of Suntan. I speed dated him once. Five minutes was enough. And here's what you've won, Swindy. A million dollars worth of Goldman Sachs of crap toxic derivatives. They're perfect for wallpapering your nest egg. A complete set of the President's Heads in Chocolate from the Franklin After Dinner Mint. Mm, just in time for my book group. And 
an all-expenses-paid weekend on Louisiana's Gas War Island Resort. Slip into your Hawaiian hazmat halter top, order up a couple of 30-weight mojitos on us, and chill out. Talk about a private beach, Swindy. You're the only living thing within 10 miles. I guess I could take off my top. Uh, not yet. This is Yeri Jero, host of Empire Jeopardy, reminding you that everybody else is just a failed attempt at being us. Hello, dear friends. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer of the First Blameless Church of Science. Fiction. And let's say thank you for that. Today, dear friends, let us also say thank you to the naysayers among us. To those who put a stop to progress and change. You know, change is a dangerous slogan. In this troubled world, change means to give up your righteousness. Change threatens the family. Change isn't in the Constitution. It's in the Declaration of Independence, and we went through all of that long ago. So to say no to everything is to make no mistakes, and let's say thank you for that. No closes that open door to your inner office. Say thank you. No inspires your co-working man or woman to say no to, out of respect and risk to continued employment. Thank you. No lets you off the hook. As the good booklet says, park and lock it, not responsible. No good turn goes unpunished, so no frees you from having to learn anything you don't need or don't want to think about. So be a naysayer, if you got the strength. Remember, dear friends, ideas may appear useful, but they could be wrong. You don't want to go there. This is Bill Barnstormer. Please send for my new Naysayers Workout DVD. It lets you do that bike thing while you learn the story of Ulysses and St. Anthony, who said no to the voluptuous demons of temptation and new ideas. And it tells the story of our confusing America today and, and lets you exercise your no to the elite minorities who lack the righteousness to say no. And instead they cry out, good idea, let's try it. <sighs> $29.99 to Naysayers, Box No, That's Mine, Arizona, 246810. This is from a very interesting webzine that I go to now and then called Tom's Dispatch. One moment, there was the hum of a motor in the sky above. The next, on a recent morning in Afghanistan's Helmand province, a missile blasted a home, killing 13 people. Days later, the same increasingly familiar mechanical whine preceded a two-missile salvo that slammed into a compound in Dagon village in the tribal North Waziristan district of Pakistan, killing three. 
what were once unacknowledged, relatively infrequent targeted killings of suspected militants or terrorists in the Bush years have become commonplace under the Obama administration. And if you'll remember earlier on Radio Free Oz, I think in what we called reaming Obama a new perspective number one or two, we said, hey, Barack, hey, Mr. P, hey, Mr. Messiah, this is state terrorism. And since a devastating December 30th suicide attack by a Jordanian double agent on a CIA forward operating base in Afghanistan, unmanned aerial drones have been hunting humans in the AFPAC war zone at a record pace. In Pakistan, an unprecedented number of strikes which have killed armed guerrillas and civilians alike, yeah, kill them all, let God sort them out, have led to more fear, anger, and outrage in the tribal areas as the CIA, with the help of the U.S. Air Force, wages the most public secret war of modern times. In neighboring Afghanistan, unmanned aircraft for years in short supply and tasked primarily with surveillance missions have increasingly been used to assassinate suspected militants as part of an aerial surge that has significantly outpaced the highly publicized surge of ground forces now underway. And yet, unprecedented as it may be in size and scope, the present ramping up of the drone war is only the opening salvo in a planned 40-year Pentagon surge to create fleets of ultra-advanced, heavily armed, increasingly autonomous, all-seeing, hypersonic, unmanned aerial systems. Drones are the hot weapons of the moment, and the upcoming Quadrennial Defense Review, a soon-to-be-released four-year outline of Department of Defense strategies, capabilities, and stupidities to fight current wars and counter future threats, is already known to reflect this focus. As the Washington Post recently reported, the pilotless drones used for surveillance and attack missions in Afghanistan and Pakistan are a priority with the goals of speeding up the purchase of new Reaper drones and expanding Predator and Reaper drone flights through 2013. It's going to become increasingly difficult to beat the Reaper. The MQ-1 Predator, first used in Bosnia and Kosovo in the 1990s, and its newer, larger, and more deadly cousin, the MQ-9 Reaper, are now firing missiles and dropping bombs at an unprecedented pace. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, the U.S. Air Force has instituted a much-publicized decrease in piloted airstrikes to cut down on civilian casualties as part of Afghan War Commander or former Afghan War Commander General Stanley McChrystal's counterinsurgency strategy. At the same time, however, UAS attacks have increased to record level. Drones, drones, drones. I hate them. They're, they're wrong. They should be outlawed. And worst of all, as someone who was in the Army, I was no great grunt, but I was in the Army, I know cowardice when I see it. And death at a distance is nothing but state-sponsored cowardice. Well, this is the end of one rotation of Oz, but just like Petraeus, we're going to be sent back from another. We're there, you know, every day. But before we leave the field of battle or whatever, let's tangulate us a bit. Yeah, this isn't one of their battle poems. You know, these Tang poets were, were really sad about the wars that were going on around them. But this is one called Indulgence. Mm. Absorbed in my wine, I didn't notice the twilight. My clothes were covered with fallen petals. Drunk, I rose up and trailed the moon in the quiet creek. Birds gone, people few. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Lipo, he loved his, uh, he loved his evening cup. 
Yeah, and we love our Radio Free Oz, and we love our Oz team that makes it all possible. I'm Peter Bergman, your host. My co-host, David Osman. Phil Fountain makes it beautiful. Tom Gadrillo keeps the website going. Jazz Glass keeps us financially fine. Dave Maloney does the wonderful recording. Bill McIntyre produces it. And Scott Wilde keeps us in touch with the world of social media. Catch you on the other side. <laughs>